0: Let's open in our Bibles to Second Timothy. We're going to begin the letter of Second Timothy this morning, starting in chapter 1 and verse 1, and I'm going to read the first few verses of this letter. Hear now God's word. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord, For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask for that same spirit that's within us, that you would fan it into flame, that we would uh, receive the power and the love and the self-control that you promise to attend to your word this morning and to apply it to our hearts and our lives. We ask in the bold name of Jesus. Amen. Um, we're transitioning now from our last study through 1 Timothy to 2 Timothy, and we need to pay close attention here because the change between these two letters is Devastating. Much has happened in the years that have passed between the writing of these letters. And before we can see how Paul attends to Timothy, before we can see the hand that he reaches out to this saint, we need to first understand the setting that we find ourselves in 2 Timothy. Well, you'll remember we talked about the background of 1 Timothy. Paul himself, an apostle, had gone to Ephesus to plant a church in the 80s, 50 or 60s. You can read about that entire account in Acts chapter 18 through 20. And he plants this church in Ephesus, which at the time was this wild megacity full of opulence and wealth, but also adultery and idolatry and prostitution. I told you guys that I had the opportunity to visit Ephesus, which is in modern day Turkey. And during the tour, we came up on the public library, a massive structure that dominated the city landscape. And the tour guide pointed out where a tunnel ran from the public library to one of the major brothels in the city. That's how rampant wickedness was. Ephesus makes five points look like Frankie's Fun Park. I mean, this is a wicked city full of debauchery, but by God's grace, people come to faith. They really do. They're freed from occult practices. They join together as a community into this tiny church, and Paul stays with them, and he teaches them for three years. At the end of that time, Paul departs, and and you have this little fledgling church in the midst of this city. It it might be 30 to 60 people meeting in one or two houses. All of them are brand new Christians, and they're in a city of 100 to 200,000 people, many of whom are hostile to the Christian faith, some of whom tried to kill the Apostle Paul when he was there. So to say that, that the situation in Ephesus is far from stable would be a major understatement here. Paul, as he leaves, he's worried about this church. He prays for it constantly. And that is why he sends his co-worker, Timothy, an up-and-coming laborer in the church to go to Ephesus and to be his hands and feet in that church. He wants him to minister to that church. Well, First Timothy, the letter that we just studied, is a bold outline of the ministry that Paul wants Timothy to partake in. He tells Timothy, I want you to silence false teachers. I want you to deal with men in the church who are quarrelsome. I want you to deal with women in the church who are feisty. I want you to appoint elders and appoint deacons. I want you to honor widows and disciple the rich. I want you to avoid irreverent babble and guard the deposit that has been entrusted to you. The grace of God be with you. Well, if 1 Timothy ends with this flourish of direction and and benediction blessing, 2 Timothy begins in a very different vein. Paul is writing this letter from prison in Rome and he is facing imminent execution. Paul is going to be killed very soon from now and 2 Timothy is the last letter that he pens. We're going to learn throughout this letter that not only is he facing execution, but his friends and his co-workers are now starting to abandon him. They're leaving him. They don't want to be associated with the criminal. And as Paul becomes more and more isolated, it's almost like he's facing a second death watching friends depart. You, you get this sense of urgency in Paul as he knows he's going to die to hand over as much of this mantle of ministry as he can to young Timothy to carry on this incredibly important church planting work in his stead. But the Timothy that we meet in the letter of 2 Timothy is in no condition to bear any of this ministry weight. Read between the lines in these first few verses. Paul says in verse 3, I pray for you constantly. I'm worried about you. Verse 4, I remember your tears. Verse 5, I remember your mother and your grandmother's faith. And he says cryptically, and now I'm sure, at least I think I'm sure, dwells in you as well. Verse 7, God has not given us a spirit of fear. You put these things together and Timothy is in critical condition. Since his time arriving in Ephesus with the letter of 1 Timothy under his arm, ready to do his first independent work, Timothy has been rocked to the core. Now he was never the Herculean type A force of the Apostle Paul, or maybe even of Titus, but this is an entirely different vein. Timothy is pressed in on every side. He's afraid, and even more harrowing, he is having doubts about his faith. The, the flames of his faith that burn so brightly in Lystra, where he was first converted, have now become ashy embers, and he doesn't know anymore if God is who he says he is. As I describe the setting of Second Timothy, I think it immediately resonates with all of us. Doubts, depression, fear, suffering, feeling isolated and alone, vices and sins that grip us and suffocate us, having trouble trusting that God is good or at least that he's good to me, feeling tempted to throw in the towel on everything about the Christian faith. I'm convinced there's not a single honest Christian in the room who has not felt some of these things and I suspect that there are some in the room this morning who feel these very same ways now. Or worse, we didn't come this morning to church because it feels so superficial to come and stand and sing and chit-chat with a bunch of smiling Christians when we feel like we are sinking deeper and deeper into the mire. This spiritual funk, whether it's depression or failure or addiction or suffering, is so insidious because it doesn't make sense for Christians. How can this possibly be true? How can this be the experience of a child of God? We've been chosen by him. We've been bought with the blood of Christ. We're animated by his spirit who dwells in us for our good. How can it be possible that we experience any of this? Doesn't 1 Peter 1 tell us that God's power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness? that we have everything at our disposal to live and rejoice and worship him why are we experiencing this it's like as believers we sit starving before a banquet table everything ours is ours in Christ Jesus we have access to everything and all of his goodness but i feel so depressed and discouraged And deflated, I'm not sure if I can bring a fork from the table to my mouth to feast on these good things. Is that not the experience that we have as believers? Have you not felt these very things, or do you feel them now? Watch Paul's aid to a sinking saint. Watch what the apostle does when he sees his dear, beloved friend Timothy sink deeper and deeper. Because you know what ingredient is missing from the Christian life of Timothy up until the point that 2 Timothy drops in his P.O. box? He's missing a friend. He is missing a Christian friend to come alongside of him. The banquet table of God's truth and his, and, and his love The distance between that and the mouth of every believer is so small that the littlest child in our church can climb up and feast on God's word, right? Can't the littlest saint among us feast on the love and the truth of God? It was Julie's birthday this past week and she got a sweet note from a nine-year-old in our church who wrote to her, "'Jesus loves you, he's proud of you, "'and he wants to be your friend.'" I mean, doesn't that just wreck your heart? That's beautiful and wonderful, That's a nine-year-old feasting on the love of God. But that same distance between the, the banquet table of God's truth and love and the mouth of a believer can feel like a chasm so wide no single person could cross it. Watch what Paul does. The opening letters, the opening verses of this letter are like the Apostle Paul pulling up a chair next to Timothy and spoon-feeding him from the table these truths. Paul becomes a conduit of God's grace to Timothy and he nudges him in the two directions that he has always nudged him in these letters, towards right believing and right living. That's how he presses him forward. Watch how he does this. Right believing, Timothy's mind is scrambled at this point. He's lost his bearings. The voices in the city and in the church and in his own mind and heart have become so loud and so deafening and so persuasive. He can't make heads or tails of what's up and what's down. What's Jesus's voice and what is the stranger's voice? And this is not because Timothy doesn't know his Bible. We're gonna read in chapter three, verse 15, from childhood, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. Timothy has always had people read the Bible to him. He knows it backwards and forwards. He knows it better than many of us in this room. The problem is in the valley of the shadow of death, At the mouth of the lion's den, when you sit before the smoldering gates of hell, and you open your Bible, vertigo sets in. And the words swim on the page, and we don't have access to any of it. Paul becomes the conduit of right believing for Timothy. Where Timothy can't articulate and grab a hold of any of these truths and have access to them, Paul sits down next to him and does it for him. He writes to him, Timothy, I love you. Christ loves you and gives you the promise of life god loves you and he showers you with his grace and his mercy and his peace the spirit loves you and dwells in you for your good where timothy can't say or believe any of these things paul does it for him and becomes this conduit of god's grace to him that's a christian friend in the life of timothy well, just as he becomes this, this, this conduit, this pressing him forward towards right believing, he does also, as a gentle word, towards right living. He becomes an exhortation, a word of exhortation in his life in verses 6 and 7. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God. Now, I agree with those who see this gift and the Spirit in verses 6 and 7, not as a as a spiritual gift or a call to ministry, but as the Holy Spirit. Listen to verse 7. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. You wouldn't say that of a natural spirit or of a spiritual gift, but you would say that of the indwelling Holy Spirit within us. And this becomes the second component of Paul's friendship to Timothy. Not only does he spoon feed him from the word of God, but now he tells Timothy to chew you on these things. Do these things. I entrust you into the hands of the Holy Spirit who will allow you to walk with God. Isn't that a beautiful picture of Christian friendship to watch these two brothers together? How do we as a church apply these things? How do we get access to these things? How do we foster this kind of community in our church? How do we more and more become what we say in our vision statement, a gospel community sharing the kingdom together. Because I think in our rabid American individual culture, we can get very mercenary with our view of Christian friendship inside the church, right? We can begin to think, if I need it, I'll get it. If I find myself in a situation like Timothy's, that's when I'll become an active member of CPC and engage with other people. But that's wrongheaded for so many levels. First, it's selfish. If we're only thinking about ourselves and our needs and not the fact that in this body now there are deep and pressing needs, then it is selfish for us to say, I'll wait to plug in and engage when I have a need. And the other reason that's wrongheaded is because depression, addiction, apathy, shame, they isolate us. If we wait until we're in Timothy's situation to ask for help, we never will. Timothy's not posting on his Facebook prayer request to his prayer warriors in his midst. Timothy is sobbing himself to sleep alone in Ephesus. Christianity What we're doing together is a team sport. We either do it together in community, engaging with each other, or we do a very bizarre stepchild version of it on our own. There's no other two ways about it. We engage and we foster this kind of Christian community. You know, one of the things I despise most in life is assembling IKEA furniture. I do. I hate it. If anybody wants a ministry to our family, come and do this. Um, But you go to Ikea, you pick out a, or my wife picks out a beautiful piece of furniture, and we bring home a flat box, and I empty it on the living room floor, and it looks like pine branches and framing nails, and it says some assembly required, and I can just like feel my blood pressure rising. But when you open the little booklet on what to do, there's no words in it. It's just a bunch of pictures. And uh, one of my favorite pictures is a man standing with a hammer over a pile of wood with a shaved head and a frowny face. And he actually looks a lot like me. And there's this enormous X over him saying, don't be this guy. Um, And then next to him, you have the same guy. He's standing with a hammer over a pile of wood, only he's smiling because across the pile of wood is a friend who's there to build the piece of furniture with him. And there's no X. This is what you do. Uh, IKEA has a handle on something that we as the Christian church are still trying to figure out, and that is we do our best work together. We do this when we engage together and foster these things together. Fostering Christian fellowship in a church community is essential to trusting and walking with Jesus. It is. This is why the church was designed. So are you and I doing that in our midst? Are we taking this call seriously and fostering this kind of thing in our midst? We tell our membership that we expect for all of us to have two touches with this church every single week. We keep it very simple and we keep it very low key so that we can all engage in this way. And we say two touches. The first of which is Sunday morning worship to make this a priority, and to come on Sunday mornings, and to engage with other people. The worship service for us, in our minds, is not just from, from 10.30 to 11.30, but it starts at 10 with the coffee hour, and extends long after as we linger with each other, and as we meet people we don't know, and people who are not like us, and we engage with them. Are you doing that in our midst? The second touch we have is split between life groups and, and individual effort. Life groups, there are small group ministry. They meet every other week. Are you engaging with your life group? Are you there for the good of your life group more than the good of yourself? Are you an active participant that engages and shepherds and looks out for the believers to your left and to your right? And the weeks that your life group is not meeting, are you the kind of person who's picking up the phone and calling somebody? or shooting a text or an email to somebody, or or better, having somebody into your home so that you can enjoy their company and their friendship. These are all the simple ways that we knit together this web between us of a Christian community that we encourage each other to do. I'm always intrigued by the person who visits a church and hangs back and, and says, I'm trying to figure out if this is the type of church that's friendly to people. In my mind, that's like uh, showing up at a Burger King and sitting at a back booth and saying, I'm trying to figure out if this is the kind of place that serves hamburgers. Well, yeah, it is, but you've got to go, get up and go get one. I mean, that's, that's how Christian friendship works in a community together. We do this and we encourage this to foster what is happening right here between Paul and Timothy a community of conduits of God's grace, a community that fills each other's minds with God's truth, a community that does not let a single member slip through the spiritual cracks. That's what God is calling us to do, and by his grace, we will do it. Let's pray together. Lord, I know that even now there are some in our midst who are slipping through those cracks, who are sinking in the mire. I plead and I pray for them right now. I pray that you will surround them with Christian friends who will speak God's truth and his love into their life. Make us a a bold and courageous community that does not shy away from sin and suffering, but we engage each other and move towards it because you in the gospel have moved towards us. We ask these things in Christ's name, amen.